Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. It's the first time I've given this talk. It is uh, about people who I've spent a lot of my time studying. I've known personally eight of the uh, 11, and they are remarkable people partly because they are less well-known. So my life has been, and writing, has been very much about prime ministers and about the people with the public face. And indeed, my last two hours of my life has been uh, very distorted because uh, David Cameron, as you may have heard, has stepped down. And if you ask me at questions, I'll tell you why he has done that and why he said before the summer that he would carry on not forcing a by-election, which is always difficult for the Prime Minister uh, of the day, because you never know how it's going to go. By and large, if you're a Prime Minister, by-elections always go badly. They're always bad news. Um, so uh, that has been um, uh, tricky, tricky to handle because uh, in the position as David Cameron's uh, writer about his government, uh, people, the press, the media will want to know what happened. And um, I'm not telling them, but I will tell you. Um, so, uh, great. Uh, here we are. And this talk is going to be... Sometimes you go to talks, indeed sometimes I've given talks uh, on the First World War or on other uh, topics, uh, sometimes maybe even uh, happiness and positive psychology or, or what is education and what are we trying to do with it. Uh, this talk is definitely uh, not uh, a tired talk. Uh, this talk, if anything, will benefit from being slightly green uh, and uh, spring-like and fresh because... Uh, I have not put this together until today. This talk came together today. And I have to finish this book uh, because uh, the anniversary of the Cabinet Office is in December 2016. And I've produced the official book on it, which is going to be by the time I finish it, if I walk away from that, can you still hear it? Is this lapel mic working? And uh, the book, I thought I'd do 40,000 words. I had two months to, uh, to write it. And, but it's gone up to 100,000 words uh, about, uh, about these people. And um, I've tried to bring it together and look at how they might exercise their influence how does power work? And I'm going to finish off with 10 conclusions about this. So uh, here goes. Let's see if this works. Uh, the first 11, the 11 most powerful people in Britain. That, by the way, is Professor Galbraith and everybody. supposed to be provocative. It's, it's not, doesn't have a question mark, but you all know there's a silent question mark uh, where the, when in the place of the comma there. And... Um, uh, we can see, uh, are they in fact the most powerful people? So who are, who, who might they be? Well, you know, traditionally we look uh, and the study of, uh, uh, of politics uh, is, um, or has been uh, very much in the past, looking at the elites, looking at the prime ministers, and who are they? And, and I love these people. I sometimes think, think of them as my um, uh, rather... Um, uh, recalcitrant uh, pupils at school, uh, the Prime Ministers, there are now 54 of them. Um, they began with this man here. Interestingly, we're going to have the, the 300th anniversary of uh, the Prime Minister uh, coming up in just uh, another five years' uh, time. And uh, there is the first uh, and the longest serving uh, and the reluctant uh, Prime Minister. He didn't really want to uh, take uh, on the position, didn't want to then live from, 19, from 1735 onwards in uh, Downing Street, uh, but one of the four great Prime Ministers. I'll just go through uh, the most of them are completely nondescript, uh, like Wilmington, uh, who, uh, like a number of these people, is rather given to tears, uh, rather lachrymose and rather embarrassing in, in many ways, because they weren't called 
uh, prime ministers at this time. They were called first ministers uh, because the term prime minister was felt to be a term of abuse. Uh, memories of Colbert and uh, Mazarin Richelieu from France and memories of the overpowerful figures like Thomas Cromwell uh, 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 made uh, the sense of being a prime uh, minister unattractive. They were just known as first for the time being. Pelham, uh, the, uh, one of the four great 18th century first ministers uh, or prime ministers, uh, uh, fairly, all fairly uh, undescript, uh, shockingly awful, many of them. Uh, that is Chatham. Uh, that's Chatham, gave his name to Chatham House, uh, father obviously of Pitt the Younger and comparably greater uh, prime minister. Um, Lord North, the third uh, great uh, figure of the 18th century. Uh, again, longevity important in making a mark. Uh, look at vice-chancellors. Um, uh, and uh, he says, um, and your vice-chancellor has most certainly made a very distinguished um, and um, a, a major mark on this university. You do need time to be able uh, to do it. Uh, North uh, has been overshadowed as... I fear the reputation of the 53rd Prime Minister, uh, David Cameron, overshadowed by uh, one event in David Cameron's uh, case, too obvious to even name what the event is. In Lord North's case, it was the uh, careless loss of the... Loss of the United States. States. Uh, uh, um, uh, rather embarrassing, uh, but... Um, uh, uh, but... Uh, not entirely <laughs> his fault. Um, and uh, we then come on to uh, a, a, a figure of enormous uh, influence, uh, the uh, fourth of the great uh, early prime ministers, uh, the youngest prime minister, 23. Uh, Cameron, interestingly, uh, the youngest prime minister for 198 years. Many of the of what went wrong with Cameron, I think can be explained by his comparative youth. He's still not 50. Uh, and he's still not uh, of an age when many uh, of us would look to reaching the uh, climax of our careers, having learnt the most, absorbed the most. Um, and, but I still think that Cameron did. We'll, we'll talk uh, about that. Um, uh, and these people, um, they were having a cabinet. Why did cabinet emerge? Well, uh, cabinet emerged under them, so we can talk about the premiership. There were antecedents before Walpole, but I think uh, we're fair to say that 1721 is the beginning of uh, the first uh, prime or first minister in the country. And cabinet emerged because uh, the first minister needed to uh, have a forum to bring together the very small number of, uh, of ministers heading departments. Uh, so the southern and the, and the northern department, which were the antecedents of the foreign office and the home office and the treasury and the admiralty, uh, a very powerful uh, department indeed, and were needed to help uh, the monarch get the votes through the House of Commons, to have a sense of uh, order and discipline. And uh, the Prime Minister would write to the monarch and say what had happened. And until 1916, uh, this was the primary form in which the cabinet uh, minutes, uh, which were very small. I was talking to Andrew Roberts, uh, the historian last night, the biographer of Salisbury, Prime Minister at the end of the 19th century, who was saying, you know, goodness, Salisbury's cabinets uh, ruled half the world uh, and there were only five or six uh, uh, in cabinet at that time. So very small uh, gatherings of, of course, all men. Uh, Pitt, um, a decisive figure, uh, was ill from very early on, was advised by his doctor to drink a bottle of port a day to help uh, with uh, his pains. That went up to three bottles, genuinely. I mean, I think we always exaggerate. Uh, so he's certainly one of the ten great drinkers amongst the prime ministers. Um, so here we, here we, ooh, uh, that was exciting. Um, uh, and then we're just going to go uh, here. Percival, the one prime minister distinguished for 
being assassinated, yes. Uh, four American presidents, uh, but only uh, one uh, British prime minister. Not certain he was going anywhere very fast before that happened, but uh, unfair perhaps to, to judge him. Liverpool, a uh, very substantial figure uh, as prime minister, seeing the country through the end of the uh, very challenging uh, Napoleonic Wars and the aftermath in periods of great domestic instability. Uh, we then come on to Wellington, uh, not successful as a, um, a, a, as a prime minister. A very rare example of a military figure, again, unlike the American experience, um, serving as a, uh, as a prime minister. Uh, and we then come through Melbourne. Um, uh, Melbourne, uh, much better known today because of the television series, and I'm sure you're all much too serious here uh, to, to be watching the television series about Victoria. Uh, but we can see Melbourne. That's what he looked like. Out of interest, is anybody follow? Anybody watching that television series? Oh, okay. Um, so, so, so a number. Uh, and Melbourne considered uh, that the quite formal minutes uh, that were being prepared uh, in cabinet uh, for, um, uh, for, for 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 presentation to the monarch that this would be unsuitable to uh, Victoria. Um, and that her young female mind, a lot of sexism going on there, um, were, uh, but that was the time, uh, was, uh, was untrained and, and uh, unsuited to reading minutes. So he gave her a digest of a letter. And the habit of writing a letter about the meetings of cabinet uh, continued all the way through Peel, Russell, Derby, Aberdeen, Palmerston, Disraeli, Gladstone, Salisbury... Uh, Rosebury, uh, Balfour, Campbell Bannerman to Asquith. And uh, this is the point at which, in the First World War, uh, that the, the need became totally apparent uh, that the amateur way of conducting government could not continue any longer. It was not uh, working uh, to have the only uh, minutes and records of cabinet which had grown in size, expansion of government even before the First World War, the 1911 National Insurance Act, expansions of the role of government following the end of the Boer War in 1902. So the numbers of cabinet ministers growing, the business of government growing, the need for interdepartmental coordination growing rather than just a series uh, of silos uh, something more needed to be done, not just to record uh, the minutes of Cabinet, but to prepare an agenda, uh, and also to then ensure that the decisions of Cabinet were properly uh, followed up. And there was a growing crisis, the Battle of the Somme, beginning uh, in, on the 1st of July 1916, finishing on the 18th, 19th of uh, November, uh, amidst a crisis, a vic great victory had been promised. A great victory uh, didn't happen. Uh, Asquith uh, was seeming to be and was increasingly ineffectual. He was spending cabinet uh, time uh, writing uh, letters to Venetia Stanley, the woman he loved, who was a friend of his daughter. Um, and uh, he was distracted. It needed much more cohesion. And along came this man who'd played a significant role in undermining him, um, one of the great um, uh, four great prime ministers of the 20th century. Um, there were also four great prime ministers of the, of the 19th who we could um, uh, talk about and you could ask about, but the first of the great prime ministers of the uh, 20th century. And he came to power uh, on the 9th of December 1916 and part of his arrival was a recognition that something needed to be done, that this amateur, hapless way of conducting government business and the interface between politicians and the all-important military needed to be professionalised and improved. And along came a man who was chairing a, a, uh, one of the prototype cabinet committees uh, called Morris Hankey, and Morris Hankey uh, stepped up from servicing the secretariat of the, of the Committee of Imperial Defence, founded uh, just after the Boer War, to 
creating something called the Cabinet Secretariat. The Cabinet Secretariat, what did that do? Well, it produced an agenda. It went around uh, Cabinet minutes, ministers and said, what would you like to talk about? It recognised that there was a need, a cyclical need, for Cabinet to be talking about various items at various times. It recorded the minutes. So no longer was the only record uh, uh, that, that was kept uh, the letter written by the uh, Prime Minister to the Sovereign, if indeed ministers could get hold of the letters. There was now a properly orchestrated and circulated set of minutes which were then followed up and an increasing growth of cabinet committees, recognising that in this vast expansion, government expanding five times during, uh, in size during the First World War, and indeed inside Number 10 itself, the garden suburb, there was no space inside uh, Number 10, uh, so uh, there were a series of uh, huts put up, um, temporary huts put up in the garden, at small wall garden at Number 10 and Number 11, uh, called the Garden Suburb. Um, uh, put up for uh, Lloyd George's personal staff um, and included Francis uh, Stevenson, uh, who was his mistress, uh, who he had uh, living with him uh, at the time, who, as you may know, he eventually uh, married. Uh, Lloyd George, driven man, uh, driven to uh, victory, working his way through in his mind about how to see through the uh, appalling loss of life on the front uh, and to devise, to work with uh, a, a military strategy that didn't uh, use uh, the, the, the British soldiers as uh, fodder for machine guns and shells. Uh, and uh, by 1918, helped obviously by the arrival of uh, the United States, a clearer strategy was, was appearing. At the same time, his mind was moving towards post-war uh, reconstruction, uh, very much a social reformer. Uh, and this, all this work coordinated by the Cabinet uh, Secretariat. And he formed a very close relationship with Hanke. We're going to see Hanke's uh, image in, in just a moment. Uh, and uh, the, the, he recognised that he could uh, entrust to Hanke vast quantities of the conduct of government. 20 years ago, I wrote a book called The Powers behind the Prime Minister. I, at the time, had been writing a book about John Major, and I remember one of the facts that struck me was he got, uh, he received 3,000 letters a week from the public in Downing Street. So uh, I imagined he would spend a lot of time uh, with, a, um, uh, with an envelope opener going through these. Um, and you know, I was very naive at the time. Um, and of course, it was pointed out that he didn't open any of them. Uh, he didn't uh, see them. So I said, well, who then decides what does he see? And then I went on to who decides who does he see? Who decides how long does he spend with everybody? Who decides uh, what uh, the media he uh, reads? Because he can't, won't have time, or she, uh, Thatcher, won't have time uh, to read uh, everything. And, and of course, what we, our inputs shape our outputs. Our inputs become our outputs. So those people who are deciding uh, what the Prime Minister sees are shaping their view of the world and the way they're going to take decisions. Those people who decide um, who they see. So Theresa May now is recognising that the job of Prime Minister is 20 times roughly more complex than the job of Home Secretary in terms of uh, the demands upon them. Everybody wants to see them. 212 or uh, so countries, uh, ambassadors want time with the Prime Minister, all the MPs, all the ministers, all the heads of all the national organisations all want face time with the Prime Minister, partly because of the kudos that those photographs are going to uh, show the boost it's going to give to your career. So the people deciding, the powers behind the Prime Minister, uh, are uh, in many ways more important. Or are they perhaps the same as the Prime Minister? Can you talk about, w w we sometimes talk about this in our personal relationships, can we talk about, for those of us 
in uh, relationships uh, with partners. Can you really define the area where you begin and the other person ends? Uh, or those uh, of us uh, like me who are religious, can we uh, talk about where we end and where the divine begins? That's a totally meaningless proposition for those who, who are, 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 are not believers. But the same principle applies, and we, we can see uh, this sense of where does the Prime Minister... Uh, can we talk even about Theresa May? Should we be talking about Theresa May's team? Uh, and I've become so fascinated always by people in power and the people around them. So Lloyd George formed a very close relationship with uh, Hanky. Hanky was very sinewy, very feminine. He was a military person. Uh, he was a naval uh, person. He'd done a lot of work. He was fascinated by books like Erskine Childers' Riddle of the Sands, fascinated by those books looking at the threat that Britain would be under before the First World War, um, worked very much on coastal defence. Well, you know, why would he possibly have anything in common with um, this Welsh uh, genius uh, and who was no kind of military uh, figure at all, worlds apart, uh, and yet he did. And then he also uh, became very friendly with uh, Bonner Law, who was the Conservative, who, when the Conservatives rebelled at the Carlton Club, uh, took over from him. Uh, and then, utter contrast, he just worked his way into, he went to see Bonner Law and uh, said, can I help you? Uh, and then uh, when Bonner Law fell uh, with Baldwin, he just made himself essential with Ramsay MacDonald, who was so poor when he uh, and was a widow, um, uh, uh, was a widower. When he um, arrived at uh, Downing Street in January 1924, this uh, man uh, from Lossiemouth in, in Scotland, uh, he sent his uh, daughter Ishbel on the first Saturday up to the sales in uh, Oxford Street because uh, he had no cro crockery or cutlery and every other Prime Minister who had all the previous 38 who'd come into Downing Street had, uh, of course, all their grand houses in London uh, and outside and moved everything in, whereas uh, Ramsay MacDonald just had Ishbel. And MacDonald, uh, sorry, Hanky saw his gap and invited uh, MacDonald uh, to dinner uh, on his first night in Downing Street uh, at the Oxford and Cambridge Club. Uh, uh, actually, it wasn't the Oxford and Cambridge Club, it was the Carlton Club. Uh, he invited him to for dinner and for a, a glass of champagne. Brilliant. And MacDonald, of course, accepted. Uh, and that sense of working your way uh, into uh, people. But with Chamberlain, he didn't get on. Chamberlain uh, became... Uh, uh, didn't, uh, didn't gel with uh, Hanky at all. For Chamberlain, uh, there was a man, Horace Wilson, who was his uh, official, who he, his civil servant, who he listened to, who thought very similarly uh, about the way to play uh, the dictators. Um, and then a man came in, the second uh, one, who was the son of the poet laureate Robert Bridges, and his name was Edward Bridges, and he was there with Churchill. Um, and we just go through, and Bridges carried on, uh, and these are the prime ministers. And when we look at them, uh, by the way, I would go through and say, um, uh, great prime minister number two of the century, great prime minister number three, uh, car carrying on here the, that tradition in the, uh, the orator read out earlier for being genuinely non uh, party, uh, Attlee, of course, the great Labour leader, uh, Eden, uh, the tragic uh, leader who became unstuck with Suez, and I think undid the third cabinet secretary called Norman Brooke. Uh, Norman Brooke uh, uh, was, uh, uh, I think, got overly close. He got overly close to Churchill. Um, the first book I wrote was called Churchill's Indian Summer, about Churchill back in Downing Street, 1951 to 55. And at the time I wrote that, 30 years ago, I was very praising of Brooke. But now I think about it, Brooke, in fact, protected uh, Churchill from the colleagues in Cabinet and from the world. When he had his stroke 
1953, on the 23rd of June, shortly after the Queen's coronation, when Italian Prime Minister de Gasperi was having dinner in number 10. Very embarrassing to see Churchill lurched over. It was Brooke who protected him. It was Brooke who also protected this man, including the protocol, uh, the, 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 the Sevres protocol, when the agreement was made with the Israeli and French uh, prime ministers to have the secret collusion over the invasion of, uh, of uh, Egypt following the, following the nationalization of the Suez Canal. Brooke uh, therefore colluded with Eden in lying to Parliament. Uh, I think he also became too close to Macmillan. Um, and then a man called Trend, Burke Trend, took over, uh, was there during Wilson. Uh, Wilson, uh, a, uh, we thought at the time, interesting example of, of, we thought at the time that Wilson was a great leader. Uh, I wonder whether that's true. Trend fell out with him very badly because uh, Wilson was so irregular in the way he conducted himself as prime minister. Uh, Heath, Trend fell out badly with Heath because Trend was an Atlanticist. Heath was a European. In came a man called John Hunt in 1973 at the same time as the man who Heath was relying on. Uh, the equivalent of Horace Wilson was a um, son of a Salvation Army uh, leader um, uh, and his name was William Armstrong who had a breakdown, in fact had to be taken out of Downing Street at the height of the miners' strike in early 1974 in a straitjacket, um, and which was tragic. He then recovered and, uh, uh, and went on to have a successful uh, career outside the civil service. Um, terrible, terrible pressure. So uh, uh, it was John Hunt who saw through the last days of Heath uh, and Callaghan, uh, and then it was Robert Armstrong who saw through uh, Thatcher. Uh, and what was extraordinary was that there, looking at, looking at Armstrong's quality. Who did Armstrong uh, make his, build his whole reputation around as a civil servant? Which prime minister? He looked after Heath. Uh, and Thatcher and Heath was a dreadful um, uh, relationship. Uh, and yet uh, Armstrong managed to gain her trust uh, and arguably was pushed too far by her above all when the former uh, intelligence officer Peter Wright published his memoirs called Spy Catcher. So loyal was Armstrong that he went down to um, uh, Australia to fight, uh, to try and fight the publication of Spy Catcher. Uh, and then along came uh, Old Etonian. Uh, Robert Armstrong was replaced by Old Harrovian uh, Robin Butler in 1988, who saw through Major. Uh, and uh, Blair is interesting because he cut through four cabinet secretaries and didn't use them at all well and would have been a much more successful uh, prime minister had he done so. Uh, he saw through the end of uh, Butler, uh, who uh, they nicknamed Old Buttleshanks, uh, was the nickname that Robin Butler had from Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair and Jonathan Powell. Um, and then, um, and, and then he saw through others, Richard Wilson, uh, Andrew Turnbull, and Gus O'Donnell. Uh, Gordon Brown was saved by uh, the man who became Cabinet Secretary, the current one, who is Jeremy Hayward. So, um, and Jeremy Hayward saw through uh, David Cameron and Theresa May. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, she could last longer. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it was, the, the oldest prime minister was, uh, I'll give you the youngest, the oldest was, was Gladstone at 82, followed by Churchill at 80. Uh, that, would, that would get her up to uh, 80. Uh, so there we are. So um, the, the, the great thing about the cabinet secretar secretaries is even though they started off hanky, much more junior, and Bridges went on, he was the last one, to go on from uh, running the cabinet office to running uh, a Whitehall department. Uh, thereafter, they all finished, from Norman Brook onwards, they finished as cabinet secretaries. So they started off really as quite lowly secretaries. The big people, the big powers in the land, were the, uh, uh, were the 18 permanent secretaries of the Treasury uh, with people. I mean, just look here at, there's Horace Wilson I mentioned. Look at Warren Fisher, 
20 years running it. These were the big, powerful people, but a bit like deans of uh, faculties or heads of, of bishoprics or heads of divisions of, of uh, enterprises, they uh, were powers in their own land. What the cabinet secretary did was they covered the whole waterfront. They didn't know just what was going on inside the uh, treasury, uh, but they also knew what was going on inside the home office, uh, the second of the great home affairs estate, um, and uh, looked there at John Anderson, who went on to uh, become a minister, cabinet minister in Churchill's government, Anderson Hutz, charge of home defence, very powerful people, uh, or indeed uh, the permanent undersecretaries at the foreign office, uh, and there they are, uh, and people there of, uh, of really uh, enormous power, including John Kerr, who was likened to Machiavelli uh, with his mind. I wonder what would have happened if Kerr had been in charge of the Foreign Office during the whole uh, uh, pre-referendum period. Um, so that, so, so that I'm concluding that, in fact, it isn't these people, even though the permanent secretaries uh, start, you know, started off much more powerful, much bigger beasts in the Whitehall field, much older, uh, than the cabinet secretaries, because their focus was just on their own departments, they didn't have the cross-cutting power that the prime minister needs. The prime ministers are very uh, weak people. They are very under-resourced. They are very overburdened. They are very vulnerable uh, to being pushed this way or that. And um, we'll look at some minutes uh, coming up in a moment that cabinet secretary is right, but essentially they are telling the prime minister, uh, you will uh, at 10.30 uh, in the morning uh, meet the ambassador of France. He will tell you that his president is exercised about uh, A and B. Your response on A will be this. On B, sorry, uh, prime minister, you're, you might want to consider your response to A uh, <laughs> is going to be this, and your response on B is going to be th this. Uh, he will then come back and make the following points to which you should respond like this and you should uh, finish here and remind him that you're looking forward to seeing him uh, at dinner at Chequers uh, next Friday evening. So uh, that is what, so the, the Prime Minister picks up the brief, they'll be in the overnight box, uh, but they'll be looking at that just before. Um, so the, the Cabinet Secretary's cross-cut, there is Hanky, 22 years there, uh, in his naval uh, uniform, uh, and sad at the end, sad to be bruised by uh, Baldwin towards the end uh, and by Neville Chamberlain. Along came uh, Bridges, uh, fought, the only one to fight in the First World War, um, fought on the Somme, uh, wrote beautifully, and it's extraordinary on the Somme, you can see uh, he's keeping a diary under fire, uh, with exactly the same handwriting. The really interesting thing, by the way, are not the cabinet uh, uh, minutes. They're the cabinet secretary's notebooks. These are the verbatim accounts that they write during the cabinet meetings that says X says this, Y says that. The cabinet minutes are hopeless because they kind of don't give you any... This is what's in the public record office, what, which historians see. They just give you a very bland view about the way the discussion is going. Bridges' cabinet secretary notebooks, his verbatim notes, are exactly the same handwriting as when he's under fire at Pozier on the Somme on the 17th of July, 1916. Uh, and then Norman Brook, um, who uh, was not an Etonian, went to Wolverhampton Grammar, uh, son of a schoolteacher, uh, who had a massive man, uh, a very heavy uh, disposition. Uh, I came across in the um, American archives uh, an account of him, uh, just before the famous Nassau discussion in 1961 about Polaris missiles, uh, describing him as the most influential man in Britain. Um, and then you had, um, you had their uh, trend, uh, been at Whitgift School in South uh, Croydon, very high-minded, crushed, totally the only one to leave early, crushed by uh, Wilson and then crushed by Heath. Uh, Hunt, a uh, Catholic, uh, one of the few... Uh, very few to be uh, a practicing member of, uh, of a faith. Uh, uh, six years strong, strong man, saw through the irregularities of uh, Wilson, saw Wilson off uh, in, his, uh, in early April 1976 and the Lavender List, saw off 
uh, Marcia Williams, Lady Faulkner, uh, and provided the grit and stability. Then along came Robert Armstrong, uh, genial old Etonian musician, uh, son, of a mu son of a musician uh, himself, Armstrong, Thomas Armstrong, uh, very cultured, replaced by rugby playing um, head boy uh, of Harrow, uh, Robin Butler, always very much the head boy. You can see why uh, 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 Campbell absolutely hated Buttleshanks. Um, uh, and then along came Richard Wilson, uh, described in Campbell's diaries as the most uh, 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 surprising thing about, uh, or striking feature about uh, Wilson is the shape of his ears. Uh, this, I mean, there was something very childish about the court of um, uh, the court of uh, Blair. Turnbull, why didn't he do more to, um, to, 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 to prize open what was happening in the run-up to the Iraq uh, misadventure? Uh, Gus O'Donnell, very much, very much a charmer, had been, uh, had been <laughs> Major's uh, head of press, um, uh, working class background, um, uh, very easy, very comfortable with everybody, uh, great exponent of well-being and uh, happiness, and the current uh, complete uh, genius, uh, an impresario of the British state, whose power is almost identical, as I like to remind him, to that of Thomas Cromwell. Um, and uh, he wouldn't be smiling like that if he uh, knew it. As, so the Cabinet Office, just very quickly looking at, uh, at this, uh, this here, the thesis, is that power has always, and I must wrap up in uh, just in 10 minutes, power has always resided here uh, in the British state. This here, this is St. James's Park. Uh, that there is the uh, lake in St. James Park, if you know that. Horse Guards Parade is here. And this is uh, the Whitehall Palace where the monarchs in Britain, uh, the Tudors and the Stuarts, uh, ruled the country from uh, when uh, the Westminster uh, Palace uh, proved inadequate. Uh, they moved northwards because the Thames runs north-south. The Thames runs just on the other side of these buildings here. Um, and so north is this way, so White, uh, Westminster is here, and this uh, higgledy-piggledy set of uh, buildings here was, was erected, and uh, the only one surviving is this one now, which is the, the banqueting house, Inigo Jones. The rest has all come down. There was uh, one great gatehouse here, another great gatehouse uh, uh, there, uh, and this is where... Uh, this is where uh, Henry and Elizabeth and the Jameses and Charleses uh, had their royal palace. Uh, and now, uh, this is the back of Downing Street. Uh, and Jerry, Jeremy Hayward's office is just here. And looking at it here, you can see uh, the gates. Uh, so you've got, um, sorry, you've got here, uh, you've got Westminster Abbey here. Um, and uh, you've got the uh, Parliament buildings coming down here. And this shows you, these are the great... The two gates, this is Whitehall here, Trafalgar Square is up here, Chang Cross uh, there, the river wider then than it is uh, now. Uh, and here you have um, St. James's Park uh, here. This was uh, Whitehall Palace on the river, uh, going up there to the Tower of London, coming down here uh, to Hampton Court. Uh, this is where it was based, and the power has never left this 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 area. So when you had 1688, you had William III, but then particularly uh, George arriving, the Hanoverians, uh, they didn't like, uh, they didn't like uh, uh, living here, too close to the river, too dirty, too smelly, too unhealthy, and they moved up to Kensington Palace. Uh, that's where the uh, uh, royal family lived uh, until uh, Buckingham Palace was developed. Uh, they moved up to Kensington, vacating all this area here that fell into disuse. Um, and then uh, Cromwell, who was uh, spymaster to Oliver uh, Cromwell, that's right, Downing, Downing, George Downing, who was spymaster to Oliver Cromwell, um, and then changed sides and became a royalist after 1660, brought up this land here uh, and put up a series of houses in cheap property, now that Whitehall Palace had moved away, and put up a row, a cul-de-sac of houses called Downing Street. Uh, and that was why Downing Street was where it was. Uh, the um, Cabinet Office 
uh, came here. These are demolished. The river is just here. Uh, it's near Whitehall Court. And Hankey moved in here on the 9th of December 1916. And min the Ministry of Works knocked walls through this way and that way so that he could have a, an interconnected set of buildings. When it was demolished, they moved here. These buildings here, Richmond Terrace, still stand. This here is Whitehall uh, here, uh, here, and they were in these buildings here. Downing Street is just here, very convenient. And then when war came, uh, this was considered to be not strong enough to withstand bombs, so they moved here to what was known as the great... Uh, uh, the government offices on Great George Street, GOGS uh, was the name, and this was the second of the three great government, mass government office buildings that were put up from the mid-19th century onwards. The first one here, which is Gilbert Scott's Foreign Office, you can just see it, that housed the Colonial Office, the Home Office, the Foreign Office, the India Office, uh, and then secondly, uh, the, what's now the Treasury Building, uh, housed five departments of state, including education, and the Cabinet Office was put here, and it was all underneath at the back, and you know you might have been to the Cabinet War Rooms down underneath on the other side, all reinforced in the event of a bomb landing. Uh, uh, no bomb that the Germans had would have been capable of penetrating to where the Prime Minister was working, where the Cabinet Office were working underneath all of this. And, of course, it was a 24-7, 365 uh, days operation. This here is the aerial shot, uh, and not generally known, least of all, by those people who live in it. This, in fact, was Inigo Jones's building for Whitehall Palace. Had um, the Hanoverians, had uh, the later Stuarts not fallen out of love with it, had William III not fallen out of love with it, this was his plan for the new Whitehall Palace. And it was simply thought, oh, yeah, uh, some of the Minister of Works thought, we'll have that. Uh, and this was the design they used for uh, the Treasury. So you've got Parliament just here. And then finally, uh, they moved in 1962... Uh, to the reconditioned uh, offices here. That is Downing Street. So this here is the door to 70 Whitehall, and it's where this is the back way into Downing Street. For those of you who follow, um, who, who, who follow uh, Yes Minister, uh, you go through that door, and there's an inner door there connecting the Cabinet Office here to uh, number 10. So just finishing here, some samples uh, of documents. Uh, this is uh, the first, uh, or one of the first, uh, records written by a minister, uh, a prime minister to the monarch. Uh, there you can have, uh, there you can see a document from uh, the November the 2nd, uh, 1975. Uh, Mr. Disraeli uh, writes um, uh, his uh, missive to the Maj Her Majesty. Uh, that's talking about uh, Egypt. Um, here is Asquith talking to the monarch uh, the day before the uh, First World War broke out, uh, notifying uh, George V of what was happening. Here uh, is, I know it's difficult to see at the back, but believe me, this are the first ever minuted cabinet records. Fascinating uh, document uh, with the Prime Minister uh, in the chair, uh, Lloyd George. The minutes of the meeting of the War Cabinet, it was still called, held at the War Office because Number 10 wasn't yet adapted to it, uh, on December the 9th, 1916, at 11.30 a.m. And it said to be, to be returned to uh, the Cabinet Office after it. Uh, here are more uh, minutes. Uh, here are uh, the Prime Minister here talking about the end of uh, the First World War. The Prime Minister announced he'd received a message from France stating that the armistice had been signed at 5 a.m. that morning, November the 11th, 1918, and that hostilities were to cease six hours later, viz., uh, 11 uh, a.m. I just love, they're just completely uh, fascinating. Uh, uh, this uh, here is Hanke's note uh, during the um, abdication crisis, 2nd of December, 1936. And it says, most secret to be opened personally by the Secretary of the Cabinet or uh, Deputy Secretary uh, Maurice Hanke. Uh, and that is, uh, you can see there, you've got the signatures on the opening of Robin uh, Butler on the 6th of May, uh, 1988, uh, 52 years later. Um, and uh, these are just uh, a series of, of documents. Um, uh, the, the, there is Churchill writing to Bridges in the war. Um, the the uh, wonderful document here. Uh, can you see that? Suez Canal, 30th of October, 1956. Uh, that has to be the best ever cabinet uh, minute. Um, 
I mean, how Eden thought he could get away with it is extraordinary. He had sent over Patrick Dean and Selwyn Lloyd, the Foreign Secretary, to France, to Sevres, Southwest and Southwest Paris, to have this discussion, to agree that the Israelis were going to invade the canal and the French and British were going to then intervene as, uh, 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 to break it up, and thought that he'd get away with it. Um, so uh, the, 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 these, that's an example of Thatcher's uh, notes, uh, lots and lots of underlining with Thatcher, uh, lots of, of disagreement. Uh, there's a note from uh, Robert Armstrong to uh, Thatcher, and these are Thatcher's notes underlined uh, heavily uh, as you go through. Uh, and okay, and, and just finishing off in uh, my dying uh, minutes, what do I make of, of all of this? Uh, what I've tried in the, this book, and this is the first time I've brought these to, to, together, to, um, uh, to say that the cabinet secretary is the modern first secretary to the monarch. So they are the equivalent uh, of, um, uh, of Colbert uh, or Richelieu or uh, Woolsey or uh, Thomas Cromwell. They're responsible for advising the leader, whether it's the uh, monarch or the prime minister, coordinating their government, keeping the realm safe, protecting its history, and one of the core functions of the cabinet office is the history section and the official cabinet histories, uh, as you may know, and ensuring that the realm is not undermined internally, uh, which means they oversee MI5 and MI6. So that's, um, so I, I think there's a, a continuity, and that monarchs ruled from Whitehall Palace, and cabinet secretaries ruled from, well, where Whitehall Palace was. Uh, I think it has to be something about that. During the last 100 years, there have been 20 prime ministers, 18 heads of the Treasury, the permanent secretaries, 18 heads of the Home Office, and 25 heads of the Foreign Office. You saw their names. But the cabinet secretaries served twice as long as on average of the other civil servants and been far more powerful than any other official for most of the time, particularly when four... Um, well, just first of all, the survival of the Cabinet Office was not a foregone conclusion. Uh, after uh, 1918, particularly the Treasury uh, and particularly the Foreign Office were furious uh, with the Cabinet Office taking their powers. They tolerated it during the First World War because of Hanke's particular military expertise, but as soon as it was over, they wanted it killed off. Uh, but Lloyd George... Uh, had become too dependent upon the very wily hanky and recognised he couldn't do without him. Constant fights by the Treasury to land grab power back from the Cabinet Office and the headship of the Civil Service from the Cabinet Office and also the, uh, the Foreign Office. Um, uh, and you can imagine that the Foreign Office, I mean, who was minuting the Versailles Treaty? Who goes off and, uh, and supervises meetings of the G7, uh, G8, and the G20 today? It's the Cabinet Office. It's not the Foreign Office. The Foreign Office has been in decline over the last 100 years. Why is that? A number of reasons. Partly because the Prime Minister has become the Foreign Secretary, but also because of the position of the Cabinet Secretary. The geography of power is all important. The geography of power um, uh, is all important. Uh, who... Uh, has rooms near to the Vice-Chancellor, who has rooms uh, near to the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, who has uh, rooms near to the Prime Minister, to the um, head teacher, to uh, anybody running organisations, to uh, managers of England, um, women's hockey teams, um, are, are, have power. Uh, and... Uh, to spend time with the uh, leader. Of course, you're only selected to have those positions because you are either empathetic personally or because you too, have too much independent power to be displaced by the leader. But to spend time with that person, to be physically close to them. And number 10 is such an odd building uh, because uh, it is the most unsuited, unsuitable, uh, improb improbable, implausible place to have a national leader. So geography of power, and that's what the cabinet secretary has. The personal chemistry trumps any job description. And I think we all know this, don't we, in organizations? Or whatever job description you have, 
Uh, and I sometimes worry about those people who are very, very keen on their job descriptions. I mean, you know, for goodness sake. I mean, I've never read any job description I've ever had, um, or indeed any contract I've ever had in any job. Uh, I mean, you know, what matters is, is, your, um, uh, is what you do uh, and the relationships that you form. And can that personal chem chemistry work? And it's very like... Um, uh, the, the, those who work best have adapted themselves to their PMs uh, and uh, have that gift of not just getting in with one but then changing over and making the next person think that you're loyal. I spoke there about uh, Armstrong and his ability to uh, please Margaret Thatcher. Uh, cabinet secretaries have been at risk of losing their impartiality because of the acute needs. So even the great Norman Brooke became mesmerised by Churchill. Churchill had something called the Other Club, founded in 1911 with Effie Smith, Lord Birkenhead, which was a very, very elite dining club. Bridges were not invited to join it. Brooke was. You know, Churchill's such a clever man. He knew uh, about the vanity, the vanity, the vanity, the vanity of cabinet secretaries. And uh, it, it, it's so intoxicating uh, to, to, be, uh, to receive notes uh, from... Uh, prime ministers and to be invited to checkers and to be invited uh, to, to, to private dinners at Downing Street and one of the greatest honours is to be invited up to the prime minister's flat uh, which till 1997 was above number uh, 10 is now above number 11 and 12 uh, and, and it's very seductive um, and uh, you can lose it um, and then uh, the influence of each uh, cabinet secretary is ultimately a mystery I mean, we, we, we just don't know, as is the influence of the PM's spouse. I mean, it's very hard to know Sarah Brown's influence on Gordon or Hillary's on, 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 on Bill Clinton's or maybe Bill Clinton's now on Hillary uh, Clinton. It's there. You know it's there. You can see more of it uh, with the Cabinet Secretary because unless you have unusual relationships yourself, you're not always writing your partner notes on which there are comments. You can see what the Cabinet... Well, maybe you do. Uh, the Cabinet Secretary... Um, but it's something akin to that. And uh, sub-finally, the Cabinet Office has been much emanated across the world. It's been as much copied as this Parliament. We know uh, we talk about the mother of parliaments. We should be talking about the mother of Cabinet Offices because it's been so much emanated. But the British Cabinet Office is unique in its power. Uh, and finally, Cabinet Secretary has all come from a very narrow band. They're all male, <laughs> they're all white, and they're all middle class to date. Um, and I think when Jeremy Hayward goes... Uh, I think there's going to be so much pressure. So uh, those are the conclusions that has left um, uh, just um, 10 minutes for questions are still being in time. Uh, sorry that's slightly raw. I, as you can see, I was thinking my way through all of this when uh, I was speaking, but I'd love to have uh, questions uh, if we... If, yeah.